podcast is brought to you by Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Are you easily offended? Those people having an opinion opposite of yours absolutely make your ass hurt. When people shit on your favorite pop culture brands, does it make you want to go postal? Do you feel the need to throw a fucking temper tantrum whenever people don't like the same things that you do? If you answered yes to any or all of these questions, then the Cheeky Bastards podcast is most definitely not for you. So we highly suggest you grow the fuck up and go fuck yourself. On September 6, 2022, if you're not some pearl-clutching candy ass who needs to speak to a manager every time someone has a different opinion than yours, or if you're not some limp-dick movie bro who gets queasy at the idea of somebody taking a shit on the films they also fucking did, then this just might be the podcast for you. So go grab a box of fucking tissues, grow a set of fucking nuts, and join us this fall for some hot takes that are guaranteed to chafe some fucking asses. Welcome all you QT faithful to your 12th Tarantino Bible study, where each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of the major scenes from this month's movie. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to once again welcome back to the show, making his third appearance, the host of the Rocky Series podcast, the worst of the best podcast, and it's a long road, the Ramble Series podcast, Mr. Ryan Revelkin. And together we will be taking a deeper look at the gospel of Tarantino as we turn to the book of Inglorious Bastards, chapters 15 through 17, the massacre at the La Louisiana Tavern scene from this amazing film. Welcome back, Mr. Vulcan, and may Tarantino be with you always. And may he be with you always. It's a pleasure to be here again. This is great. And unlike some of your previous guests, I'm actually here in chronological order. <laughs> yes, you Yes, you are actually, in, at which this movie, from what Brad Pitt says, and I covered it in the main podcast, also was shot 
in sequential order, which is not usually what oh, is happens in film. Yes. Now, like all the titles you have, this actual scene on the DVD, Blu-ray, whatever, however you watch it, digital, is actually three chapters long. But it's one mm. giant scene. So clearly right. they can't have a 24-minute and 45-second scene only be one chapter. So it actually takes up three. So like when it's divided up in chapters on the DVD menu, is that what you're saying? Yes. So what I try to do for every Bible study, I hope everyone at this point knows because we're at 12, is when I give you the chapter, it's the actual chapter on the Blu-ray, DVD, or... I I caught that. So you can go and check out the scene. I wonder if that's a DVD thing or something. Is that a... Is that like a media format thing? Yeah, so it was DVD, blue. Yeah, you know, obviously, when we had VHSs back in the day, there's no chapters. Right. So once they started, you know, breaking up into Blu-rays and the DVDs came out, then they started making chapters. And so, you know, 28 minutes long, that's, you know, they're not going to do it. So they break it up know. in certain certain spots. That's yes, weird. so this actually goes for three chapters. Okay, Because gotcha. it's a long, long movie. Yeah. I mean, it's a long scene, but it's an amazing, amazing scene, which is one of the reasons I chose is because... Rewatching it, what it made me think of was, and I'm not sure if you're a fan of this movie of his, but it made me think of <laughs> the hateful of the eight. Bastards? No, no, no. I'm saying of what well, I was watching this scene. It made me think of the hateful eight. I'm not sure if you enjoy yeah. the hateful eight, oh, but it's a slow burn, and this whole scene mm-hmm. is an amazing slow burn up until we get to the end, and then we get two. <laughs> two Mexican standoffs in this thing. So mm-hmm. anyone who doesn't enjoy the Hateful Eight, well, then I would say look at this scene and tell me how can you not like the Hateful Eight and love this scene because they're very similar. Obviously, this is 20 minutes long. That's an almost two-and-a-half-hour movie, but it does the same slow mm-hmm. tension buildup. You know, you never know what's coming. You're always on your back foot. You never know how this thing's going to end. And So that would just be my take for those people out there if you don't enjoy The Hateful Eight, then I don't know that you're going to enjoy this scene that we're about to talk about. Well, I, I don't know how you can be a Quentin fan and not enjoy... Look, frankly, any of his films, the way he writes, the, the style that he writes in, I mean, we're, we're just talking about before the show started, about bands that we enjoy and every band, granted, has a different album and there's albums that you enjoy or songs you enjoy more than others. And I know directors and writers are the same way, but Quentin has a certain style where as a fan myself, and of course you running a whole show dedicated to him and our listeners, is that if you enjoy his style, I can't imagine you're going to watch Hateful Eight and not enjoy the basically this the the plethora of dialogue you get because Quentin is a dialogue master, and I think Hateful Eight was his opus to his ability just to write dialogue and very Agreed. like one, almost like a play. I think Hateful Eight was the idea that you could almost have this as a play on stage. Yes, and I would go see it right. instantly. Wherever wherever they play it. I, I'll do the traveling show. I'll see it on Broadway. I'll go to camp. Wherever they're going to put this up, I would go see this as a play. We, we talked, of course, our last recording together, Kill Bill Volume 2. That was one I did yes. with you. That's the last one I did with you. I would say it was the Kill Bill film. Something tapped into Quentin as an artist or as a director and writer where he's never looked back. From Django Unchained to okay. uh, Glorious Bass's Death Proof, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, he, hey, Filet, of course. Am I missing any after all those films? Bang, bang, bang. They're just Agreed. incredible. The, the 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 production value, the set pieces, the costumes, the acting. He is just like I think Kill Bill tapped something into him. Now, when I watched rewatching Glorious Bastards for this recording, again I watched it again. I I was watching this like, boy, I don't know what my favorite film like uh, post Kill Bill, <laughs> including including Kill Bill, because he's just so good. 
at what he does. I think he's just gone better. Once upon a time in Hollywood, like you watch that, this guy is a man. He's a good writer and director. Like I know, and and it just looks better with every movie. It just looks good too. Like it's just something aesthetically pleasing about his films. And this was two thousand nine, but it did not look like it was thirteen years ago. No, no, it doesn't. And funny is you were the one who helped usher out our 90s era. The first six we did were all his 90s films. And it was Jackie Brown. And when you helped me kick off Kill Bill, you and Steve, this was the beginning of the 2000s. And as I said in that podcast, and I'll say it again here, that started Kill Bill was, you know, he said, you know me for my crime. I know the 90s, I was crime. But watch what I can do. I'm about to spread my wings and really fly. And I believe, obviously, this the decade of the 2000s was where he really did. Does because he does Kill Bill, which is complete homages to Kung Fu Samurai and some Spaghetti Western in there, subtly hidden for those who, you know, people may not understand what a Spaghetti Western are or weren't fans. He then goes into his own slasher film with Death Proof. And then mm. he comes into this World War II picture, which he actually was writing before Kill Bill, mm-hmm. but he I couldn't find that. the ending. He could not figure out the ending for this film. So he jumps into Inglorious Bastards later and and then you said, you know, after Inglois Bastards, we jump into Django. Then we've got the Hateful Eight, and then Once Upon a Time. Like, you're right. Every time you just think, as, as I'm starting to watch these now, because I'm now into this phase, it's like, God damn, I don't know which one yeah. I like more because I'm like, oh, Kill Bill's amazing. And I watch Death yeah. Proof, I go, man, why don't people love this? I watch this, I'm like, yeah. holy shit. I know I've got Django coming up, and then the Hateful Eight, and then Once Upon a Time. It's just like, yeah. Those are some amazing films. Like, those are just amazing, amazing films. And rewatching this, boy, I know you have, you're have you having a whole episode based on this. So I don't want to yeah. take away from what you've done uh, yeah. with your other hosts on this step, on, on this movie. Uh, but just overall, like, everyone's acting is top notch. I had forgotten that Fastbender was in it. And, of course, he's in the scene that we're doing. I, <laughs> yeah. I just forgot. I don't know why. I don't know why I forgot he was in it. I haven't seen this film in probably, who a bit of a spell, I admit. Like, I don't re-watch films very often. I just don't. I just, I just don't have time. No, <laughs> like, I get it. I get it. You know, because I want to watch new stuff. So I just, it's very rarely do I go back and rewatch things multiple times. I've already seen this movie probably two or three times, but that's it over Mm -hmm. the. 13 years so some of this was a bit of a refresher for sure and definitely the tavern scene i'm glad to rewatch it of course or it's be pointless beyond your show today but i i've forgotten uh just a how intense it was and michael fassbender because i think when i first saw this i didn't know who he was like who he was going to become as an actor like he wasn't quite the name yeah i mean this definitely put him into yeah. that orbit and we've i've said this many times in the show it either brings someone back into the orbit or puts them out into the orbit also let me go holy cow that's right there we're in this film and i not saying that obviously tarantino did not discover Michael Fassbender. We're no. not trying to say that, but this movie and this mo- this scene, this is his scene. This chapter, he's in the chapter four of the actual film. This scene is where he kind of leaps into into the stratosphere, and then he goes on to be, you know, into the X-Men films, yeah. you know, the reboots of the early X-Men films. So, yeah, he really uh, spread his wings after this film. There is... No actor other than Daryl Hannah. And I know I said this, and I, <laughs> I maybe people, have, I know one of your hosts disagree with me, but I'm sorry. Again, watching this film, Fastbender, Diane Kruger, Michael Myers, BJ Novak, everyone just yeah. accelerates. Like something about Quentin does, and oh, it's dialogue, it's directed, but it just goes to show you the power of a director, the power of a writing, a writer. And you combine the two with Quentin that everyone is just elevated. All these side characters, these no-name, quote-unquote, no-name, non-Hollywood actors. I would assume a lot of them are native German actors. It's just, I want, everyone is just like, no one's bad. Why is it, Diane Kruger, who, who is she? Like, she's kind of a, you saw her in Troy, for example. It was one of her yeah. big American films. Not very good. Why? Maybe because the director, writer, but you put her in a Quentin film a few years later. Oh, she's a really good actress. But it just goes to show you that when you have Quentin writing and directing, everyone 
his game is just elevated almost naturally just because of who he is. So I do have a name. I want to, I'm cheating. Can I cheat? Can I cheat? Sure. With a name that I want, Quentin the Direct. And Sure. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. All right. Go ahead. You, you changed okay. it. It wasn't I, a I'm cage. Well, all right. We're changing it. All right. No, no. I'm not changing it because it's a new individual, one. It's a new one. Because gotcha. this individual has a great career. Okay. He doesn't need help from Quentin, but I would gotcha. love to see him under Quentin. Tom Cruise. Oh, okay. Uh, yes. Uh, Can you yes. imagine Tom yeah. Cruise directed, like, because he's an amazing actor. I don't oh, care yes. about his yes. oh, yeah, yeah. and, exactly. and he's such a hard, amazing, like, uh, incredible actor and yes. dramatic actor. And he yes. can play a bad, I think a bad guy, like, you know how yes. Leo play, played that bad yes. guy in Django? Yes. And uh, uh, can you imagine Tom Cruise played a bad guy under I Quentin's direction? It. Okay, mm. that was, that was right. me fanboying. I don't, it came to me when I was jogging <laughs> today. I was like, no. a bad boy Tom Cruise under Quentin's direction would be amazing. And now it's time to open your Tarantino Bible to the book of Inglorious Bastards, chapters 15 through 17. So, as I said, this scene is 24 minutes and 45 mm. seconds long, takes up three chapters on your DVD, Blu-ray, or digital. And when we open, and because, you know, we get the two lead-in scenes. We get the Operation Kino, where we get to meet Michael Fassbender, right. and he's getting told what the operation is going to be. And then he meets up with the bastards, and we get some great dialogue about not wanting to fight in a fucking basement. <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. fantastic. And then we just jump right into this. And as we come in, you know, right off the bat, we're thrown into it like it's an oh shit moment. Immediately yeah. because we have German soldiers that weren't supposed to be there. They're playing a game with Diane Kruger's character, who is Bridget von Hammersmark. She is playing a German actress, and they're playing a game called Who Am I? You know, it's it's yeah. got so many iterations over time. But watching it, now watching it, obviously, to, for this, <laughs> what I found was interesting. I found these two things about this game that it showcases. One, how the education system has changed over time, especially here in America, with our literary literacy or lack thereof, because everything that they're doing is based on books. There's no real movies out there right now. We're in the 1940s. Cinema is still in its infancy stage, and you know right. we're not. They're not covering the books like we have now. So sure. yeah. every single one of the people playing the game, even when we get to when Hellstrom will join them and they'll play in a little bit, they all seem to be on the same playing field as far as their education. They all happen. To to know these authors, these characters, these stories, like they are well read. Where today, half these people, as they're you know going through them, I'm like, there's no way my kids no, or no. the generation below them know any of what they're yeah, talking there's so, about. Definitely some names I didn't know. A lot of some of them were German. Uh, yes, German, agreed, uh, agreed. Yeah, yeah. But it also showcased though another thing though is that this game is also in essence a pop culture game, yeah. albeit one of from the 1940s. It highlights like his love of pop culture, regardless of era. You know, like you could just sit there. And go, oh, he's bringing up all these names, but technically they're playing a pop culture game. So if you and I were to play Who Am I right now, we would not have Matahari or no. Winnetou or King Kong. We would have modern day, most likely people from either the Clinton Tantan movies or Rock. Sure. You know, it would be that kind of thing. So I did also realize that it's just another way of Tarantino to <laughs> basically esponge upon us how much he really does love pop culture and not just from modern day, but even right. what would be considered <laughs> pop culture, even though technically it doesn't have didn't have the same well, cachet. The he's a film Exactly. Nerd. And that's the thing. Watch this again. It occurred to me, like, Inglorious Bastards is basically, yeah, Quentin nerding out about German film. This is like his German <laughs> film. Like, <laughs> like, homage to German film. Like, the whole thing's based in the cinema. They have uh, actors and actresses, uh, both real and fake within the film. It's a, you know, it's a revisionist modern, or sorry, revisionist history, of course, about uh, about something, because there was a famous uh, actor that was at the cinema that was a real, I forget his name now, I apologize. Uh, that was in the movie, and I googled this. Oh, he's a real actor. He actually won the won the first uh, Academy Awards in real life, but he 
dies, of course, in the end of the film, so that was the alternate history. In fact, at the movie premiere, Joseph Goebbels introduces Frederick Joller to Emil Jannings, whom Goebbels calls the world's greatest actor. Emil Jannings was a Swiss-born star of silent movies. During the 1920s, he started several silent classics of German cinema directed by F.W. Murnau, including The Last Laugh from 1922 and Faust from 1926. In 1927, Jannings moved to Hollywood to star in American movies. In 1928, he became the first winner of the Academy Award for Best Actor and the first person to ever receive an Academy Award for his work in The Way of All Flesh, from 1927 and the last command from 1928 so it was it was just i was googling while i was watching every every name that was brought up to see if this was a real thing that quentin brought in from his nerdism or just uh for the film actors uh or like the you know, film characters within the film so it's amazing and he did this again of course he revisited this whole idea yes. once upon a time in hollywood. like he went full on once upon a time in hollywood like now i'm geeking up with this film you know Brad Pitt <laughs> plays a stuntman you know he plays a stuntman again you got stuntman in, in death proof like maybe it's obvious and i just should have always seen this but you know quentin's love of film is in his films it's a weird oh, like, meta, yes. like yeah you know what i mean by this yeah i'm a film nerd i'm gonna make films about films and films and films and everyone's in the yeah. film and film. it's a weird and then he creates films within the films it's like holy crap this guy is this, <laughs> yes <laughs> Anyways, yes and so that's why he to me bit, is so. one of my is my favorite of all time you know uh that was a post on instagram and this is going to be now when you folks hear this two months down the road so this is two months ago right when you're hearing this but a person put on you know who's your favorite director and why and i started to write and i realized for me to answer this kid's post, it's going to be a post in and of itself. And I was like, I'm just not going to do it because there's so many reasons. It's not just because I like his movies. It's all the things he brings and does that other directors don't. And I'm not saying there aren't great directors. There are phenomenal directors out there. But I just think he goes just a, an extra step so above much, most so of them. Yeah. And, it, like, and I'm Googling things. So I, I, need to, I need to start re-watching his films like more than I already have, but just really more because watching this again recently, I know I keep saying that watching this again. I I, I just rewatched it, but uh, how much I was googling in a good way, not like I would pause the film because I don't ever I don't like to I don't go on my phone when I watch stuff. I'm still old school that way, so I paused the film and then I would Google. Oh, that's a real person. Oh, so I was learning things watching this movie, which I love. That's <laughs> I what kind of like like so. I, I it was kind of fun to learn things about German film history and and then seeing oh, seeing where they are in the real world history. Yeah. Like, oh, World War Two hasn't happened yet, or World War One, or when they won the Academy Award. Like this German actor won the Academy Award before World War I think one broke out. So it was very interesting to see how Americans would have treated Germans before the war, but not anymore. I think he's the yeah. only German actor to win Best Actor. Wow. Well. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, because the man in this movie is Austrian. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mr. Walt. Yeah, Mr. Walt. Yeah, boy. Did he win two Academy Awards? Yes, both of them were supporting Quite actor and both are Tarantino films. He won, yeah, the that's two what, films he was in, he won. Yeah. That's great. That's yeah. right. It was both. I couldn't remember yeah. if he was nominated. Anyway, sorry. I'm going to no. look place. You no, want you're to good. To see it? I... Well, like you're saying, they are filled with a lot of moments. Now, one of them is what he loves to do, what he's great at. And I'm learning this more and more as I watch because... Now that I'm rewatching everything, you know, obviously for these podcasts and for these these extra episodes, I really start to really watch them. You know, I'm like looking into them. I'm going past just being a fan and enjoying them. I'm trying to pick up all the stuff he's laying down there. And one of them is in the beginning of the film, he does a great job of subtle foreshadowing. We see the five German soldiers playing with Van Hammersmark and 
Eric comes over and asks, you know, what do they want? And they all order whiskeys. And the guy goes, whiskey, whiskey. And then he turns and he goes, five whiskeys. And he says it to him with his hand up, gives him the number five. Just a normal number five that we all do because you can't say number five any other way unless you drop a thumb and you put like you just do something weird that everyone would say, you know, show the number five with five fingers up. It's subtle. It's just there to know that this is going to come to, if you're paying attention, that he didn't just show this guy putting up five and had this moment for nothing, but it feels like a, just a real throwaway moment. Because later, the ordering whiskeys is going to become very important and actually leads to all of their dying. Almost every single person in this bar dying because of the way a person orders. Now, we cut from that, so we're just like, okay. And we already know tension. And then the great shot of the bastards walking in on their feet. And then all of a sudden, they stop. And they are frozen in the tracks because they're expecting Von Hammersmark, a couple of French people in there, and that's it. And instead, right. it's basically a small platoon of German soldiers and she's hanging like out. With them. Yes, and she's, she's hanging hang- out with them. Yeah, so right off the bat, the two German-born bastards are like, what the fuck is this? And then even Hitchcock, or Hickox, uh, played by the great, as you were saying, Michael Fassbender, Michael Fassbender, they all freeze. And one of the notes I took down was, these guys are supposed to be spies. They're supposed to be able to handle any moment. And he just got done asking Stiglitz, are you, you know, you're going to be calm? And they bo- they all walk yeah. in, and literally right then on the first moment, they almost broke break character. They almost give themselves away. They almost they freeze and like they're not expecting Germans to be in a place and they're dressed as Germans. So it's one of those moments, and we're gonna have a few more in the scene that I love that Tarantino does is he makes all of his characters. So fallible. A lot of movies, uh, spy movies, like James Bond never breaks character. He's always James Bond, although he always wants to tell everybody his name. He and fucking Batman want to tell people their name so fast. Like, Bruce Wayne can't can't say I'm Batman fast enough sometimes in the in films to let people know who he is. Same with Bond. Like, he's supposed to be this undercover agent. He's always telling people his name. And it's his real name, which is what I find very interesting. But those guys are always very calm and cool, right? These guys, the moment they walk in, they shit themselves. And they're like, oh, fuck. Like, it's almost like they're going to end the mission right then and there. So I just love those moments because it just builds so much character. You feel real. You feel caring about it. You don't just feel like, okay, now... Bond has got to do this. He's going to sleep with this girl. You know what I mean? Like You don't feel like it's going to be A to Z. Now you're just kind of like, oh, shit, how are we How are we going to get out of this? How is this going to end? Yeah, it's an incredible scene, and uh, we're talking about, of course, German-born actors. I didn't realize Diane Kruger was German-born, and also the guy who played uh, Stiglitz was, uh, he's German. Yes. Ironically, because Diane Kruger's best-known performances were in English-speaking films, Quentin Tarantino thought she was an American and doubted whether she could master the German dialogue and accent. So he originally didn't want her for the role. Diane begged him to give her a shot. And at the audition, she quickly proved to him that she was, in fact, a native-speaking German. And so that's great that they used, like, well, they, Quentin, and rightfully so, he wanted these German-born actors, obviously, to play, well, the German characters, which I which I like. And, of course, they do that a lot. I mean, I should say, they, we always haven't done North American cinema hasn't always been good about that. No. Um, you know, like, so what I love about Quentin, I think where he could hear, he got definitely a lot of the side actors and characters, like the young soldier who was a new father. You could tell he was obviously very German-born, the way he was speaking German very fluently. But there, it's just great to see. And I always think, sorry, I'm going over the place. When Michael Fassbender is speaking German, or when uh, uh, Christoph Waltz is speaking three, like, what, Italian, French, like... Four languages. English. Yeah, yeah like... Yeah. It's insane to me. And I know they're acting. They have to memorize lines. But I wonder how much of it's 
does Christoph, Christoph know any of these languages already? Because I know he's European-born. Yes, he? he knew all three. The one he didn't know that he learned oh. the dialogue for the film and did an amazing job was the Italian. The only one Italian. he wasn't fluent in was Italian, but he English, oh, he so German, and French. He was man. He's yeah. so he is. Such yeah, we a, talked about him in the first Bible. Uh, I know. Bible I was going to say about amazing. him as his character. You're just like, oh my, you hate him. Like this is weird. Like, oh, you're such a cocky yes. piece of, you know. But you're mm-hmm. so good at what you do as well. Like, you're not an idiot. The way he just uh, that scene where he kills Kruger's character. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I, I felt. I, I was like, did she die? I can't. Yeah. Like, oh, she gets yeah. killed. I know. Like, I was like, oh yeah, she just dies. Anyways, it, it was, no, it's because it's actually a good segue because what it is that's the mark of a master writer and filmmaker. It's their ability to draw you know us as the viewer in. And make us feel a part of the scenes where even good people we will either hate or even bad people will love. And what I mean is we're sitting there. They're talking. They finally start to sit down and talk. And, you know, they're, they're, already, they're already basically showing their cards. Except these, Luckily, these German soldiers are all drunk and playing a game and aren't paying right. attention. But they're basically showing their cards that they're not who they say they are. And she's talking with them. And she's about to spill that Adolf Hitler is going to be at the mm-hmm. premiere. And, yeah, you know, it's the whole big thing. Yeah. And they get interrupted by Willem. And when he does that... What ends up happening is, is us as the viewer instantly hates him. He's done nothing we're, wrong to us. We hate him for, him for interrupting. Sure. Yeah, He's a brand new father. He's celebrating the fact that he right. has just had the birth of a child. You and I are fathers. We know exactly yeah. what that's like. We don't know what it's like to give birth, but we know what it's like to become a father and the joy that brings you. And here we are, even as two fathers, sitting right. there watching, going, fuck Willem. I hope he fucking dies. And that's because we are so engrossed in the story. We want to hear what's going on that you go, fuck Willem. Why? Willem is just there celebrating. They've done nothing wrong. I mean, yes, they're on the other side of the war. That's fine. But if you're German at the time, you know, I've always right. said, when you're at war, there are two sides to each side. Each side thinks they're in the right. So well, take that it's as interesting it we bring that up. That's some, yes, yes and no. There's people that... Like we think about the Russian attacks right now, I think there might be Russians, absolutely Russian soldiers who don't necessarily agree with the conflict, Agreed. but they have no choice. They're in the conflict, right? And then you have uh, Stiglitz, who was that person. He was, uh, of course, yes, a, a dissenter from the, you know, I don't agree with this. And, <laughs> a yeah. big time dissenter. In a roundtable discussion with Brad Pitt and Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino said that Till Schweiger had previously refused to put on a Nazi uniform for a film role, largely due to being born and raised in Germany and his very real hatred of anything Nazi-related. When Schweiger was told he'd brutally kill a Nazi in every scene he wore the uniform, he happily agreed to play the part of Hugo Stiglitz. Yeah, talk about Willem, it, when, to fast forward to the end of the sequence here, when he's pleading for his life and that whole sequence with uh, Brad Pitt's character, yeah. that I don't know who that young gentleman is, but boy, he's a, he was a great actor. The way great he, went from, he went from that jovial, drunk behavior to that tears in his eyes, begging for his life. Like, very good actor. Yes. Uh, before I forget, I do want to say this, and I do apologize for bouncing around. <laughs> Did this scene in general remind you of any, any other Quentin Tarantino scene from another film? It's not it's supposed to be a trick question. Yes, but yes. Uh, it reminded, well, there's a couple, obviously, but it reminded okay. me, there, there are two. One is a little, one was his first foray into Mexican standoff, which was Mr. White and Mr. Pink pulling guns on each other after they've decided they're not going to take Mr. Orange to the sure. hospital. Mr. White not liking that. And then I didn't the think other of that one, yeah. would be when the bride finds out she's pregnant and I forget the Asian woman's name who kicks open, you know, come, uh, something Kim comes to kill her and they stand there and they're at a standoff and that okay. ends without violence. So those two ended without violence. Okay. This one. This Not whole so sequence actually reminded me of, if you look at it, now this, this is what it reminded, of, reminded me of, was the whole Bill coming to the bride's wedding moment. And there's that whole oh, talk yes, and yes, dialogue. Yes, I, yes, everything's right. yeah. okay. We know it's going to end poorly, especially in the Kill Bill films, because we know yeah. the bride gets shot. 
that's where I think Quentin drew from this tavern scene. I think the tavern scene, because then you have the innocent bystanders yeah. getting killed the same way at the bride's party, people getting killed. But the assassin squad was ironically the Americans coming in, yeah, uh, them shooting on each. But I think this was basically a reverse. A reverse I like that. Yeah, of, that's a good, yeah, good the point. wedding sequence of Kill Bill. Uh, and it might have only come to me because I just recently watched the Kill Bill film to, for, to record with you and then watching this sequence in the tavern. Because the other what clued me in on that very similar sequence was the bartender, the way he was like a character, but he was always in the background. Quentin always made sure that we see the bartender always kind of listening, holding the gun, all this stuff. The same way Samuel Jackson's character on the piano. Yeah, I, they, they both represented the eyes and ears like of the that. events, but they weren't controlling the events, but they were hyper aware. Eric is French, but he seems to be very pro-German because he or is at looking least a German to, friendly. Yes, place. because he's yeah. ready to take out the bastards. He, I mean, he was ready immediately. Did he, he was okay, very are you friendly. When he put his hand on the gun. Yeah, because Do we know I, well, who I'll get to. That? I will get to. I have. Okay, I okay. got down. Who, okay. When we get okay, to that, okay. I want to. Before hear we get to that, who? though, let me ask okay. you this question: Did you yeah. think, since you brought that up, did you think when you first watched this film, did you think that this was going to go down the way it ended up going down? When that, when it all kicks off at that one moment, did you expect that? At any moment in no, this. No, no. I thought there'd be some good guy survivor. I had no idea that the last survivor was going to be uh, the, the Willem, the the newly uh, the new father. Yeah. So that I didn't was even actually... think there was going to be this big shootout. Because, like, you know, most of his, except for True Romance, most of his Mexican standoffs don't ever go into violence. They usually end without violence. We put this tension and then it never happens. Because usually he's good at, you know, provoking us with sudden violence out of the fucking blue. Which this actually did become. The violence in this film is interesting. It's very... Uh, and it's, I think he started doing more of this in his later films because uh, he didn't even quite do Kill because Kill Bill is quite drawn out violent stuff, especially in Kill Bill Volume One. But the violence and the the violent sequences or the no, I, I hate the term actions. We'll say the 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 violent action sequences in these films and his later films seem to be very quick. Have you noticed that? They're out yes. of the blue, yes, very I've quick. Noticed it, like, yes. Whoa! So I watched that sequence. That I, I actually had to go back. I wanted to watch it like in half speed. But to get back to what we were uh, talking prior to that is the subtle foreshadowing. And there are two moments that we, first time around, you don't notice it. When the bastards finally sit down before Willem interrupts them, Eric comes over and asks what they want. And they order three whiskeys. Except they do not use hand signal this time. So once again, three whiskeys. We've got a whiskey, five from one. They showed a hand. This guy, he doesn't say anything. So three whiskeys. So again, it's there. It's just little nuggets being dropped in. And then another great one. He does this throughout all his films. He puts in these little, what we think are either throwaway lines or throwaway moments that are just nothing. It just moves the scene along. How do we get Willem away from her? Get him out of the way. He's going to ask for her autograph. She, with no problem, gives it to him. She signs a piece of paper. Right. She kisses it. She hands it to him. Not a big deal, right? Sure. Yeah. That is her death note. She signs yeah. her death note. It is that napkin that gets into the scene you talked about where she is eventually killed a mm -hmm. couple of scenes later by Hans Landa. That note gives her up, gives up the mission, gives everything up. That simple, kind gesture. That we just take as like, yeah. who gives a shit? That's something that people would do anyways. It's a nice thing to do. It kills her, which I think is just so. so I know to all our celebrities, all the, our celebrity listeners, don't uh, don't sign anything. Don't sign anything. Give me your death note. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Don't sign. Don't make it legible because again, yeah. you think this is back in the day where you know cursive writing was used all the time. It was right. the form of writing, and so people really worked on it. So it's not like, like if I sign something today. 
it looks like I'm trying to sign a baseball or uh, you know a sporting. It's just some quick and fast and looks fancy, but you couldn't tell it's my name. You know what I mean, people are like I don't think there's a legitimate signature. If I was ever famous, but hers, you know, perfect and two max love, and then the kiss, and it's like it's such a simple moment. But now when you rewatch it, and you can rewatch it again, and my listeners hope you do when you see it, just know the minute she kisses that, it's like the kiss of death. She has given herself the kiss of death and hands it to him, and that is that. It's just those small moments you don't pay attention to. You're just like, oh, this is cute. No, nothing cute about it. It's her death note. She dies because of that napkin and that act of kindness. If she told him to fuck himself, she might still be alive. Now, I do find it interesting. I mean, if this was a German thing or just a movie, this is probably the weakest part of the scene. And I know it's a... Uh, Go ahead. Quentin has to write something. Like, the, the, like, what happens afterwards has to have a genesis. There has to be... Why are we having this discussion? Why is anyone interested? But you have two different Nazi soldiers, German soldiers... Picking up on Fastbanger weird accent because he's British, right? Yes. He's, he's, so he's from the UK. Funny enough, he is, but he actually speaks German. He was born in Germany, raised <laughs> in the UK. How okay. about that? Michael Fastbender's performance as Lieutenant Archie Hickox is layered with irony. Fastbender was born in Germany to German and Irish parents and raised in Ireland. He now resides in London with fluency in German as his first language, Gaelic as his second, and English as his third, with a mastery of English accents and dialects. In this film, he plays an Englishman who goes undercover as a German and who can speak German fluently, but has difficulty hiding his accent. The, that's very meta. But within the film, so within the film, I didn't know that, but that's interesting. So again, we have another German, but that's funny. You know, with a name like Fastman, I guess it sounds like a German last name, yeah. But what I found, I wouldn't say irritates the right word, but it's just like, I, I know they got to, you know, or else you don't have the German soldiers. But it's it, like, I'm in the military, I'm in the Navy, but I would just never, like, I know it's very multicultural now, mm-hmm. obviously, we're not, a, we're not at war with any one nation, but it's just the idea that I see an officer wearing a uniform that's my military, and he, you know, he's brown-skinned and, you know, or, you know, or East yeah. Indian or Pakistan or Afghan. We have all these cultures Iran, no, in our saying, Navy, yeah. in our military. So to me, it's a non, like, who cares where they're from? Like, and I know this is Germany, U.S. It's very black and white. And I yeah. guess even back then, they like, if you're not white and German, like, obviously, they yes. wouldn't have any. Uh, nope. I get that. But then just the accent, I'm talking about skin color, but now just the accent alone, like, I don't have an ear. And the the character, Halstrom, does bring it up. You know, I, too, have an ear for accents. So yes. I guess some people just have an ear or interest in it. Like, where are you from? Because in Canada, I know in the U.S. Is the I was going to ask Canada, you this question. We yes. do actually have different accents, absolutely, throughout. Like, people yes. people farther east have this had to had by by you know had to you know <laughs> yeah. it, it, you know i'm being silly but and then I know people, what you mean. for me i'm i'm in the north uh sorry not north but pacific west pacific northwest like right above seattle i sound american in many ways i sound like I, if i go to seattle people might not get that i'm from canada maybe it's my yeah. about or yeah, uh, you it's a little bit of, um, yeah. A bit, not saying <laughs> yeah. that heavy. Uh, so the further east you go, it gets a little bit more boot. And, and what you talking to boot? It, it's, <laughs> it, but and then uh, of course in the states you got Texans, you've got uh, Georgia, people from the south, yeah, yeah got, uh, people from Boston, yeah. people right. from different cities. Yeah, there's a lot so of get, different dialects. But yeah. I wouldn't be able. What I'm getting is I wouldn't be able to, especially you guys in the states, they even have more dialects than Canada as far as sounds. And so I would, of course, we have Quebec, the French accent. So yep. I guess what I'm saying is if I was serving the states military let's say and i heard a guy speaking with like it's a mix between bostonian and maybe a little bit of uk in his voice i'd be like i wouldn't be i wouldn't be like what part of the states are you from i guess that that's the only part of that sequence where, where i was like i know they have to do the suspicious type activity because or else why are we having this mm-hmm. conversation what why the tension 
you know, uh, like if their cover is going to be blown, but how did it start? So it was, it was a dialect thing. I get it. So when Major Hellstrom is questioning Hickok's accent, he refers to Corporal Willem Wicky as Lieutenant Munich and Sergeant Hugo Stiglitz as Lieutenant Frankfurt based on their dialects. Burkhardt, who plays Wicky, and Schweiger, who plays Stiglitz, are in real life from Munich and the Frankfurt areas, respectively. That was a question I was going to ask you, is how well could you identify one of Canada's regional accents? And could you identify if someone was faking it? I think the key is, is that they didn't have, like, it didn't well, sound like someone from there. <laughs> I think you could buy me trying to fake it. So there you yeah. go. Okay, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I guess it depends. Well, then you got an actor like Mike Myers, who's really good yeah. at English accents. So yeah. Mike Myers is Canadian, of course, yeah. but he can nail that Scottish and, and UK. Yeah. He's good at doing accents. So Mike Myers could pass the actor could probably yeah. I don't know people in the UK maybe tell me I'm wrong but he sounds really good at doing English accents yes. so some Agreed. actors are very good at it. so I guess the character within this film though pretty good at it maybe to the untrained ear but to these other trained ears are like mm, it sounds like somebody doing a German accent so that's what they're saying gotcha yeah. yes you're doing yeah. a German accent but it sounds like a and the UK guy yeah. trying to sound German it sounds like Ryan trying to like listen to me do the cell where are you from partner you know, it's like, <laughs> okay, that's terrible. Like, I think you're trying to sell like a You're from, you're, Austin, from you're from Dallas, <laughs> Texas, huh? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Howdy, partner. Born and raised, son. You Born got it. Yeah. So it'd be like, okay, this guy is trying to sound like he's from Dallas, but he's not. Yeah. So. So there you go. So to the like trained that. ear, they're like, no, well, Ryan, you sound like a Canadian trying to sound like you're from Dallas. So In this scene, German-born fastbender, who speaks German fluently, did affect an unusual accent. The affectation included mispronouncing certain sounds and not speaking in the proper rhythm. Anyways, that, so yeah, I guess well, it's not no, that it's, big of a It's deal, great but... because that brings up like kind of the beautiful irony of some of this movie, of the scene, is when we start the scene right before, Hitchcock is telling everybody about Ren Hammersmark when they're flipping out about the fact why she would pick a, a tavern. Well, she's not a spy, but she's a Right. the British spy, so she'll be there on time. So just kind of like playing up the Brits are great spies, and yet the person who gives them right. away almost every step of the way is the <laughs> right. British spy. Yeah, Hickox yeah. gives away everything. He should not be leading any of it. The other two guys should be leading it. He's just there as part of the detail. He can run the operation once they get past this point. Send the German guys in alone to talk to her. They don't. He doesn't need to say a fucking thing. He could be a mute. I mean, he is the one person who gives them away instantly without that scene see what I like about the scene and again I I agree with you but it's never bothered me because I understand because also we're in World War II right we're late in the game Spying is a big thing, you know. Maybe that, it's, everyone's it's trying to, and like everyone's dollars. asshole yeah. is puckered up. The, you know, right. everyone's trying to. The Germans are trying to steal his inform. You know, everyone's trying to do the information game and get what they can. So I can understand if someone, especially an SS guy, why like, he would notice. I mean, that's kind of a thing he would yeah. do. But when we don't know he's there, and then he no. shows up, I love that that, that flip. Yeah. It's a great because reveal. the tension keeps getting. We're like, okay, we're finally getting rid of Willem. He's a, being a pain in the ass. We're gonna get back, and then oh, we're not gonna get back to this conversation. We're not <laughs> yeah. gonna know about Hitler because Hellstrom comes out, and then we get the big, you know, song and dance. And when he comes out and sits down, the tension just suddenly gets even. Like you, out, like what they say, out of the frying pan and into, or out of the broiler and into the frying pan. Like you just get that much more. You're like, oh shit! Like you just think you've escaped this bullshit. And now someone with real power, with real chutzpah, as they say, who can actually affect what's about to happen is in the room. And now it's easy to kind of bunch of drunk soldiers who are under rank and aren't, you know, don't have the balls to kind of like really press. Are you guys really commanders or not? Now you've got someone who actually by rank 
outranks them. Now that he's SS, I mean, he's the only guy with the swastika yeah. on. So you're like, you're like, fuck, we are really now being circled by the devil's, you know, the devil's rejects coming around to try to, you know, snuff this this whole thing out. And he's suspicious immediately. He's just wondering why he hasn't heard this dialogue. Well, I have a question for you. Yeah. Is he suspicious or did he always know? I think he was suspicious when he heard the voice because he's on the, again, he's on the other side. Reading, drinking, I mean, paying no point, attention. So, I mean, yeah, but after that point, because he... Well, he's, I think he sits down. The difference between him, the SS soldier, and the actual soldiers is grand. Because he, he actually he, believes in the cause. So when he sits down, because he says he knows everybody who's in country, he is now seeing if this is a ruse or if this is the real thing. So he sits down to play this game with them. And if they had just played the fucking game. I I have a couple, not not to push back, but this for our listeners yeah, please, please. to listen. No, to, for our listeners, there is a debate that he knew all along. Meaning when he talked about when uh, Fastbender's character talked about the film that he was in. Like, oh, of course, I'm in from the small town, whatever. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm from the small town. In fact, I was in the film. I thought he, he displayed his hand a little bit too... Now, granted, there wasn't YouTube back then or the internet. or <laughs> So to claim that you're in some sort of obscure German film was me and my brothers and sisters. Remember that part? And he named the film. Yeah. Uh, according to my little research, uh, Hellstrom was a film buff himself. Well, again, he did say he was an extra. And since he hasn't been to Pittsburgh or whatever, however they pronounce it properly... I think he sniffed that something might be, as they said in that time frame, rotten in Denmark, but he wasn't 100% okay. sure. That's clue so, one. Because, That's clue he, one. because at that point, he has to then also think that Von Hammersmark is in on it. Okay. So that's where he doesn't know. And she's, I mean, the only spy in the fucking room is Bridget Von Hammersmark. This bitch is as cool as the other side of the pillow. She should have run this whole operation by herself, except for her death note, which gets her killed. But she is just, I mean, she is going with the flow. Obviously, she's an actress, so it's in her wheelhouse to pretend. But she is as cool as it gets. And she is sitting there, and they're playing the game. And when he sits down to play this game, I think he's like, he feels like, oh, I have some camaraderie. But he's also still going to see... There is something about Fastbender that's definitely prickling up the back of the hairs on his neck. No, he might not know who Fastbender is per se, but here's the other big clue. Tell me what you think of this one. That he knew who Stiglitz was right away. Because remember earlier in the film? Yes. The German colonel yeah. says, uh, the guy that got his, bane, uh, his brains beaten out by the bear yeah. Jew, he says that everyone in the German army has heard of Hugo Stiglitz. Yes, but there's the key. Heard because you and I are still in the vein of mm. if we heard someone's name, we know their picture, we can look them up, we've seen them. So he is like he's a myth. They know the name of him, much okay. like when they say, "Oh, like little man." Later on, was like, "Oh, you're not as small as as, as they would say you would be." No one even knows what Eldo Rain looks like, although soldiers have come upon him because they are wearing you know civilian clothes and that. So it's that you have an idea what he looks like, but then it's passed down. So no, everyone knows Hugo Stieglitz, but no one can really pick him up by his face. Okay, yes, sir. But then Hellstrom says that every German station in France, he also knew. And remember, Stiglitz was a German soldier stationed in France. Could be. How's this? I'll give you this. He could have. But if he did, he didn't give it up because his facial expression, when he looked at Stiglitz, he had no fucking clue. I mean, like, he didn't, like, or that he was played his, his cards very, very well. Yeah, that's what I mean. He wasn't going to tell Stiglitz that I've caught on that it's you because that's going to blow his, like, his cover I, I get up. It. The, because remember how he kept, like, Love tapping Stiglitz, yeah. yeah, toying with them, and yeah. you know, kept yeah, touching you, you them. You could and very well be right. You could very well be right they, because like he was toying with Stiglitz. And then the last clue here: Stiglitz 
has that flashback of being whipped. I'm I think glad Stiglitz, you brought that up. Yeah. Okay. So who who was whipping Stiglitz? I don't think Hellstrom was whipping him, which was it's because okay. they don't show it. So it's a weird. I put that yeah. in there. It's a very weird cut. It is weird because it's like because it makes no do- sense because we've already seen Stiglitz back, so we or know it makes how sense he feels. because there was Stiglitz and uh, sorry, it makes sense if Hellstrom was involved in the whipping. I get it. But here's my only two things. And, again, okay. nothing is ever – very rarely does Tarantino drop the ball. Does things right. happen? Absolutely. Is everyone perfect? No. So I'm not going to go out and say, Tarantino never misses a thing because that's bullshit. Because he missed – and I, if you heard my episode with Volume 1 for Kill Bill, he missed that mm-hmm. – at the in your episode, he misses that Uma Thurman calls it a Hanzo sword when she calls him a Tori Hanzo. So oh. that slipped by, the mispronunciation of a Tori Hanzo's name. So yeah. does that happen? Absolutely. Film clubs, yeah. But I don't think this – I don't think anything in this sequence was a mistake. No. Because the two of them – even Stiglitz doesn't recognize – like when he sits down, he there's not that like, oh, shit moment, like, fuck, this guy knows me. There's not that expression on his face. What I'm thinking is the whipping is is he remembers being at the hands of the SS and what they did to him before when he was in that prison when they broke him out. Okay, so he's so just that's looking my at thought generally process. Speaking, yes, like he's, he's looking back as like his... this SS motherfucker. Yeah, like a PTSD response to. But being why sitting was Hellstrom kept? He kept toying with Stiglitz. Like kept like. Oh, I hate because buddy, I think buddy. it's part of his ruse. I think he knew something was up and he wanted to see. Because if these guys are just here to hang out and be fun. They're going to be fun. And here they are trying to play this game, and he's as serious as it fucking gets. And I think Hellstrom knows it, which is why I said he's had the gun pointed at him because he, at a certain point, because he knew. They're, he just knew at some yeah. besides yeah. the three. The three gives it away, but he had this scratch in the, the back of his Yeah, throat. and that was, the, that was the one scene that wouldn't say disproves my, like, did, did Hellstrom know the whole time? Or that was the three, the figure of the three was the uh, icing on the cake of suspicion, so to speak. Because uh, Quentin doesn't make mistakes like this. This is a very obvious reveal yes. to the Hellstrom character, I know. Because when Hellstrom sees the the three done the UK way versus the three with the German way of doing three with the two fingers and the thumb... Yes. Why would Quentin film it having Hellstrom going, oh, my, this guy is not from Germany. He's from the U.K. I was right. He's not German. Uh, like, he, his facial change was very instead quick. Of being, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's very like. It's just in the of eyes. Being, yeah, it should have been. If he had known all, all along, it should have been like, I, I, I'm trying to describe it for our listeners. I know what you mean. He should have almost it like a been. He should have almost been like, no, had he, had he known all along and yeah. season three, it should have been more of like, mm-hmm. I knew it kind of face like I knew it but it was more of a but it was more of a when he saw the improper three hand gesture it was more of like you've got to be kidding me I I kind of knew it is but that now, how you saw him okay like I I'd have to rewatch but yeah, I think it was I, like it was there was in the eyes it was a wasn't like I think I was he was totally, on the fence I think he yeah, was on I mean. the fence I think he wasn't plus he's also Sorry, been drinking yeah. so I think there was a little of that mixed in as well so I think he was a bit on the fence of what was going on because in in order for him to believe 100%, then he has to know that von Hammersmark, who is a obviously a German treasure at the time in the in their industry, is also in on it and is betraying her home country. So he has to already believe that going into it. So when he sees, I think he just doesn't trust the guy, but he's not 100% sure what's going on. And that's why when he's playing the game, he's trying to see, are, are, are you guys jovial? Are you ready to play? It's just a fun game. Or are you really asshole pucker tight? What is it about it? Why? Why, why is my presence so, you know, so alarming? alarming to you right now. On a side note, 
When Major Hellstrom reasons out that his card says King Kong, he's giving Quentin Tarantino's analysis of the movie as an allegory of the American slave trade. Quentin explained this analysis in an interview on National Public Radio with Terry Gross. Oddly enough, King Kong from 1933 was also one of Adolf Hitler's favorite movies. And then he's playing the game, and then he gives him the whole speech, and then like when he says, I'm just joking, he's not joking. Like he is, he's, again, it's a test because he's SS. That's his job. You know, I mean, like his yeah. job is to be, think Hans Landa, but, but less than Hans Landa. I mean, you know how good Hans Landa is. Hans Landa just arms you easily. He doesn't have the same charisma. Hans Landa is special forces. This guy is like, you know, the guy who just loves to be in the military, but doesn't, you know, he's just rah, rah, ma'am. So he doesn't have that charisma to be down and just be cool. I'm leaning towards that he was more than just on the fence. I'm, I'm, there's a lot of like, for example, he orders three drinks on purpose. Why did he order three three scotches? Like he goes, I like scotch. Scotch well, doesn't actually, like me. They ordered five drinks. If you think about it, so what they hey, he talked about the scotch. He didn't do three the three the on soldiers. purpose. So uh, who needed the scotch? So he was gonna wanted just gonna drink his beer. What's her name right. says she's gonna stick with the bubbly, and he brings over more bubbly. So what's his name says three whiskeys, zvi whiskeys, and he, then he turns. It's at that moment. I don't think he was setting him up mm. for it. I just think okay. he was just still trying to play him out. I don't know that even after they drank, if he was going to let them go. Like, I think he was going to be on them the rest of the evening. You know what I mean? Like, I think he was going to be sitting close by. He was going to watch him. He was going to follow him out, whatever. I don't think he was going to just go back behind the wall and mm. finish his book. I think he was going to figure what out, what's going on. And even after this meeting, he was going to have inquiries. Like, even he's going to be like, I, something, something's not right. We need to watch Van Hammers. And I think he was going to give up. He was going to watch them even at the premiere. I think that's exactly what was the next step. Where he may let them out. You know, they may be out of the, the so-called spider web for the moment, but he was going to keep following mm-hmm. them. It's when he does the three, and it's that facial expression. He notices it. And I don't know that it's an aha moment, but it's almost like, hmm, I... There was, I knew there was something about this guy that wasn't right. And now I know. And that's, again, I wouldn't say a weak part, but the reveal, that's why I'm, that's why I'm kind of leaning towards the other clues. Because if it was only if it was only the, the hand gesture, that, that's a lot to, to kill people over because Agreed. they did a hand gesture. Because if you were, again, if you were in the States and somebody ordered three drinks with a thumb and two fingers, would you be like, German? German spy. No, like it's just, I, I would look at him and go, "What the fuck is that? What? What? what why? You, you know what I mean? Or like, would you like, even? Or the would fuck you even notice? Like that? Yeah. Or would you even notice? Like I wouldn't even know. I, I guess so, I'm not a very good. spy. I think so because <laughs> it, it just you know even if you do the OK three or people do the three as I'm showing, no one can see what I'm doing before yeah. you go on the video. But like this is a yeah. very strange way of doing any it kind is. of number. Your it, thumb is very rarely used except for maybe a thumbs up or a thumbs down, but or the five. But like I said, this is a German people, way of doing it. The Germans supposed to do it. Put the thumb out. To, for anything. So how do they do their four? How do they do their four? I don't do they know. Do three, I mean, three, I, again, thumb? this would be someone. Did, if you're, in, if I was as an American, if someone doesn't do what I'm showing you, which is like the turkey where the thumb is inside my palm, I got the four fingers, and like the pinkies down, which takes unbelievable strength because you can barely keep your pinky down because of the the ring finger. The tendons are t- so close together that actually pulls it up. If someone did it like that, I'd be like, I don't know who this person is, but I don't think they're even. I don't think they're human, let alone American. I think they're an alien. Right. Who the fuck is able to do that? Yeah, but. It's that moment that leads to what we get. And even in the moment, I wasn't sure how this was going to end because now we've got guns pointed at testicles. Yeah. yeah. Again, I, we, I've done this a lot. I do, and I look, I understand that I'm thinking rationally, but here we are. We're in this tavern. We both got guns to each other's testicles. Why, yeah. why doesn't Stiglitz just shoot him in the fucking head? And it's, that's it. Like, I mean, 
Best fast runner still maybe get a shot, maybe. I don't know. But why is St- I mean Stiglitz is just so hell bent on destroying jer- Nazis in the most v- gruesome way. Yeah, sure. That you know he puts. I mean he's already got the gun to him. Just Stiglitz gun. Don't have to say anything. You know. So about this pickle, and he says, and he goes, all he had to do was say Stiglitz, and Stiglitz shoots him in the head. Maybe right. the guy gets a shot off. She doesn't get shot. Fast runner's character probably at least survives that shot. Everything else may not turn out, but I, I've always, every time, I'm like, why? Why is Stiglitz shooting him in the ball? Shoot him in the fucking head. What are we doing here? This is spies. This is like Spy 101. Why are we allowing ourselves to have this whole thing? Yeah, and, and again, that's this is where you... I, I do a lot of movie reviews, of course, in my other podcasts or scenes from movies. And this is where it's a combination of, well, there's a story to tell. Like the logical yes. person, like the logical like way to do things... Yes. Obviously, isn't what we do in movies because then there's no story, uh, and we don't so, get the great Seafood right. Center Nazi balls. You know, we don't get this. Yeah. You know, we, we don't get that great moment. Which, how many times do you think Schwarzenegger's wanted to say that? Like, he's like right. of all the one-liners, <laughs> that's the one I couldn't get. Yeah. So, but that being said, uh, then that was it. Seven. How long is that violent sequence? Did you have it a takes maybe of that? twenty to thirty seconds. It's very fast. I don't think and, it's that long. No, I don't it's think fast. it's that long. Do you want to know who gets down? I did this. Yeah, yeah. Tell Sex me the breakdown. All right, I'll tell sure. you who gets kills who. We'll start with Stiglitz. Stiglitz kills Hellstrom. Okay. Obviously, shoots him in the balls, and then he takes that, his knife and just buries it in the back of his fucking skull. And yeah, I love that sequence. I love, I love that back-of-the-neck violence. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stiglitz's knife has written on it, Mein Er heist true, which means loyalty is my honor. It literally means my honor is named loyalty. This was written on all the knives of the soldiers of the SS. He gets shot a couple of times. He turns around. He kills a German soldier. And he kills that female German. I'm not sure if she was a soldier or what she was. I don't. I forget what. I know the females didn't fight in the war, but she was something. I don't know what she was as far the as the one in the white shirt. Yes, the the. I thought who, she was just a. I thought she was just a waitress or someone out there. No, oh, she's, she's, she's part, oh, yeah. about at the table. Yes, she was at the a, table. Rather, she was yeah. rather chesty. That one. Okay, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now Hellstrom obviously he kills Hitchcock. He like he takes the shot to the nuts and gets a one or two shot and right. he's done. Hitchcock never kill anybody. He goes down. Yeah. He also shoots Von Hammersmark in the leg, which eventually will lead to her eventual death. Anyways, Wiki, who is sitting next to Von Hammersmark, he kills a German soldier and he kills Eric. Eric is the one who kills Stiglitz. He gets the shotgun. He shoots Stiglitz. Wiki turns and kills Eric. Willem comes out and kills Matilda. Weaky and one of his fellow German soldiers. Right, yeah. That's how everyone goes down. Okay. Yeah. And and it's nice. boom, boom, boom. It's so Love fast. It. The probably longest section of it is the shooting under the table. So he hits him in the Nazi balls, mm-hmm. shoot, 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 stab him in the back of the neck, and the that, medic goes crazy. I don't know how crazy. they filmed it, but that's fantastic. It's, yeah, it's just that the his spray testicle of blood. blood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's so good, though. It's, it's oh, so well done. It is. Yeah. Oh, and it's well thought out. As I was rewatching it, like, he doesn't leave a person out. Like, he thought the blocking of it is amazing. Like, I was like, did he get everybody? And I go back through and I go, oh, yeah. No, he, like, it, blocking of it was fantastic. You know, poor Matilda. Matilda's the biggest. She's just, you know, she's just sitting yeah. there. She gets laid out. I mean, yeah. <laughs> heavy machine gun fire. So they were in trouble Loved the it. whole time because then you realize that those machine guns were behind the bar. So obviously Eric had them put them somewhere. Right. But they had two well-armed automatic machine guns in the bar that no one else knew about. And But Wilhelm knew exactly where they were. And he, and he took everyone out. And that was the first <laughs> of the 
a Mexican standoff. So which I think is great because then we had a conversation about Mexican standoffs when we get Aldo Rain and his boys try to come in. The term Mexican standoff originated as a term in a short story by F. Harvey Smith from 1876. We will call it a standoff, a Mexican standoff. You lose your money, but you save your life. As you can tell from that quote, how we understand the term today is quite different. Today, it refers to a confrontation in which no strategy exists that allows any party to achieve victory. Any party initiating aggression might trigger its own demise. At the same time, the parties are unable to extricate themselves from the situation without suffering a loss. As a result, all participants need to maintain the strategic tension, which remains unresolved until someone outside the event or inter-party dialogue makes it possible to resolve it. Now, when everything happened, did you think the first time seeing it, Van Hammersmark was dead? Did you think everyone was dead except for Wilhelm? Until she obviously sits up and goes, I'm alive. I thought I was, I, I was, yeah, I was surprised by her. Yeah, of course, I was. Here's the thing about me. When I watch movies, I don't like to think too, like, I'm always in the moment. I try not to think what will come. I want to see the storyline as it unfolds with the characters that are watching, with, like, with the characters in the film. You know, some people are like, oh, I wonder who's still alive, or I wonder where this, is this a good guy or bad guy? If the character thinks it's a good person, it's a good person. If the, if the You know what I mean by that? Like, I don't try to figure out the ending. I, I'm always in the moment is what I'm saying. So I thought everyone was dead because it looked like everyone was dead. And so when she pops up, I'm like, oh, wow, she's alive. So I, I always like to watch movies just as they happen, as the moment happens. I try not to get too far ahead. I like to be naive, I, I guess. I love that in this scene, we think, whew, okay, wow, all that tension for 20-some minutes. What an explosion. I mean, that's like the, here the steam was all of a sudden. The kettle just explodes. And then we find out there's another kettle because now we've got another standoff. Yeah. Now, did you see Von Hammersmark killing Willem coming? No, I thought, actually, I thought that they were going to work it out. That they're just going to talk about. Yeah, you thought that he was, so, they would come down and grab yeah. her, and then, but then they I would just kind of go its own way. I should have known better. You know what I love about Quentin? He's not afraid to. Well, yeah, change your expectations or bend. You know, bend the rules. You go back to that Pulp Fiction. Of course, uh, one of the incredible scenes there where uh, they're in the car and that. Uh, Poor black kid gets his head <laughs> blown off. Yeah. yeah, Marvin. That's right. When he gets his head blown off, <laughs> they hit the speed bump or whatever. Yeah, and, and, you know you don't expect that kind of stuff. So again, what what Quentin does with his violence, it's always jarring. It comes when so you're. It's almost like a jump scare. Yeah, yeah. Like you don't know when it's because there's no musical cue. Did you notice no. that? There's no musical yeah. buildup. And so his stuff comes, oh, okay, I was not expecting that. It's like a jump scare violence. Kind of like we were saying with Marvin. We just had the whole shootout in the apartment, and then all of a sudden Marvin gets shot in the face. like, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. We just had this massive shootout here. 10 to 11 people have just been massacred on fast, very fast fashion. Sure. And then all of a sudden we think, okay, tension's ratcheted down. Boom, she shoots Willem. In the Tarantinoverse up to this point in this film, where we now are in his ninth overall film together, yeah. sixth that he has actually filmed, which is the more shocking? Where do you rank this one? Because we've got in Reservoir Dogs, Mr. Blonde suddenly gets shot and killed by Mr. Orange. We did not see that coming because we think he's about to kill the cop. Right. As we just talked about, you've got Marvin being shot by Vincent. Melanie gets shot in Jackie Brown by Lewis. Bud gets killed in Kill Bill by the snake in the bag, which none of us saw coming. Right, yeah. And now we've got I Willem hate that. I hate that getting scene. shot here by Van Hammersmark. Where would you put that as far as your surprises in those five? Uh, I guess not as high as the other ones, the ones you mentioned. Funny enough, like I think 
I, it was one of those scenes where I should have seen this coming. Maybe okay. that makes I sense. I see what you're saying. So yeah. The other four I, were I, like, whoa. Yeah, the, the snake and the with the money, that was a big surprise. That's you know, I admit I did not see that coming. Marvin definitely in the backseat. I still remember the first time seeing him in the theaters back in '94, <laughs> being shocked by how <laughs> how like the, like it wasn't unnecessary violence, but I was like, holy, that was just like <laughs> like an accidental violence is not very common to see in the film, like an accidental shooting, so to speak. <laughs> so and then they like they you know. Know, he's got brain in his afro like until see you just don't. so <laughs> so i will admit this was probably the most uh i should have seen it come so i would actually rate it pretty low like i should have i should have known it would end this way and that will do it for a second of two bible studies this month I would once again like to thank my special guest, the incomparable Ryan Rebalkin, host of the Rocky Series Podcast, the worst of the best podcast, and It's a Long Road, the Ramble Series Podcast, for joining me again today. Now, you can find the link to Ryan's podcast and the show's socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. So join me again in three weeks as Devon Taylor, host of the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club podcast, joins me to dissect and discuss Tarantino's revisionist history slave film, Django Unchained. Now in two weeks, I hope you'll check out our special Reservoir Dogs 30th anniversary episode. So until next time, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.